Okay, let's do this. The Doing Better Podcast, episode 13. Here's the tease. The, un- the understanding that Jesus' kingship, his kingdom, is a present reality, not primarily a future reality, and that it is unfolding and growing and advancing has enormous implications about what you, about how we pray and what we ask God to do and what we expect. Congratulations. Through the powerful providence of a benevolent benefactor, you've stumbled onto this delicious digital base. Hosted by yours truly, hipster grandfather, David A. Holland. Here, we explore the too-good-to-be-true, poorly understood, badly neglected realities of what Jesus actually launched 2,000 years ago. A new covenant. A better covenant based on better promises. So, Check your religion at the door, grab a beverage, grab a Bible, strap in, gird your loins. This is the New and Better Podcast. Now we were, um, you know, we were in a series, uh, we did a couple of series of teachings where we talked about, we explored the ministry of, of Jesus. It's always great talking about Jesus, isn't it? We were talking about the ministry of Jesus and then unpacking it in terms of there were actually three aspects to Jesus's ministry when he came. There was a prophetic ministry and a priestly ministry. And we spent the first uh, section of, of time together talking about how if you understand that a good portion of the first three years of Jesus's activity on the earth was functioning as a prophet, as essentially as the final Old Testament prophet, to Israel, it brings a whole lot of, of the red letters in our Bible into focus. A lot of mysteries get solved. A lot of puzzling parables suddenly make sense. Theology is important. What we believe is important. Um, somebody uh, I admire wrote a book called The Power of, of Right Believing. Why, why, why is belief, correct belief, important? It's important because what we believe affects what we expect. And the way God has designed this spiritual universe is what we expect has a huge impact on what we experience. Jesus the prophet, we looked briefly uh, for a few weeks at the, the priestly ministry of Jesus. When Jesus got back to the back end of his three-year ministry and time on this earth, uh, he moved more deeply into his priestly role. And we explored that over the course of four weeks. and. And Jesus, of course, was operating as in, in, in that priestly role, uh, absolutely in the final hours of his life, in his, in his death, in his resurrection, what he did between his death and his resurrection. Uh, you know, the scripture, we, we explored the way the scripture reveals that basically Jesus entered the Holy of Holies, the true Holy of Holies, of which the tabernacle Holy of Holies was, was a mere copy uh, of. And he entered the heavenly holy and holies, holy of holies with the, as a high priest with his own blood and sprinkled his own blood on that heavenly mercy seat uh, and functioned as that, as, as that priest. And that to a certain extent, he's eternally a priest. He is, he is a priest forever after the order of, of Melchizedek. We looked at all of that, and we won't go back over that ground, but those recordings uh, are available. So and that brings us to, to Jesus the King. And his kingly ministry. The kingdom of God is a present 
on earth, in, in the earthly realm, in the natural realm, in the realm of atoms and matter, was the generally understood paradigm uh, in, in the Christian world for most of the history of the church. Until the mid-1800s, some guys came along who developed a new system of understanding the Bible, a new systematic theology. Uh, In the mid-1800s, a a Scottish guy named John Darby developed a system that basically came to be known as dispensationalism. And dispensationalism basically became one of, over the years, became one of the dominant views in, in the evangelical world. One of his protégés, Lewis Sperry Schaefer, founded Dallas Theological Seminary. The Dallas Theological Seminary has been massively influential in the evangelical world. But there are a couple of implications, key implications of dispensationalism uh, as a way to understand God's activities in the earth. Another one is that the kingdom of God is not a present reality, it's a future reality that a day is coming in the future in which a very, very short cataclysmic and sudden period of time, the current ruler of this world, it will be defeated, kicked out, thrown out, and in a very sudden uh, and apocalyptic sort of way, the kingdom of God will come on earth and be present going forward. A couple of other implications of, of dispensationalism is, is it's implicit in that, that if Jesus is not the legal ruler of earth now, Satan still is. That basically that Satan has a legal uh, right to, to be the god or the ruler of this world. Dispensationalism has, has uh, as I say, become almost the default understanding of the way you to interpret scripture and what we should expect as believers in this life uh, over the last hundred years or so. Uh, many, many books, Bible prophecy books, have been written that are based on that, that dispensational model and based upon dis- dispensational presuppositions. However, it's never been the only view. And, it's, it's a, and, and we're going to test these two competing assumptions over the next couple of weeks. We're just going to go through the Bible from Genesis to Revelation and, and look and see, and hopefully with open minds and open hearts, what the scripture really says about the kingdom. And so the question I want, I want us to basically go to the Bible with is, is the witness of scripture, is the testimony of the scripture from beginning to end that the kingdom of God and Jesus and his rule on earth, is it primarily a future prospect that will come suddenly? Or is it a present reality that is gradually and progressively unfolding. Does it matter? It matters a lot. Uh, I need a couple of scripture readers. Uh, one, I need somebody who will uh, grab Mark 9.1 for me. Josh has got Mark 9.1, and I need a 1 Corinthians 4.20. Do I hear a 1 Corinthians? Soul. All right. Does it matter what your view of the kingdom is? That What presupposition, what unexamined assumption you're, you're holding and carrying around in your reading of the scripture, in your praying, in your doing. And I believe what we're going to see in the scriptures is that, is that the difference that it makes can be summed up in a single word. We'll see that word in just a moment. Mark 9, 1. 
And he said to them, Assuredly I say to you that there are some standing here who will not taste death till they see the kingdom of God present with power. Jesus is speaking to his disciples. He's in the final weeks of his earthly ministry. And he says to them, he looks them in the eye and he says, Truly I say to you, this is a slightly different translation. There are some of those standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. After it has come with, that last word was, power. First Corinthians 4.20. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. Our view of the kingdom has vast and sweeping implications for the amount of power we see operating in our lives. And I, don't, I haven't met a Christian lately who, ha, who wouldn't say, I would love to see more power operating in my life. Would love to see more miracles. I would love to see more of when, when, I'm, when I'm confronting uh, people who are dealing with sickness, when I'm pr- confronting and trying to help people who are dealing with oppression, when I'm overcoming obstacles in my own life, I haven't met or seen or talked to anyone, any believer who would say, I've got all the power I need. I'm seeing all the miracles I want to see. As a matter of fact, I'm just saying, Lord, too much, too many miracles. <laughs> but we need them. We, we, need, we need to see miracles. We need to see power. And power uh, is tied to our view of the kingdom. So which is correct? Before we let Fox News, CNN, and the Drudge Report determine our theology... Maybe we should consult the scriptures with fresh eyes and test a thesis in the Bible. So here's the thesis with our Bibles I'd like us to test. The kingdom of God on earth was established at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and is progressively growing and unfolding and will continue to do so until Jesus' enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. That's the thesis I want to test. It's the kingdom of God on earth was established at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit and is progressively growing and unfolding and will continue to do so until Jesus' enemies have been made a footstool for his feet. Now, there's another premise I want us to to test and evaluate. We talked about this in some of the, the previous sessions, that it seems, according to the witness of Scripture, everything that God does in human history, in earth, uh, in the earth, in time, has three aspects to it. And my own descriptions of these three aspects are that they, they're, it's definitive, progressive, and consummative. That there are three phrases of every, phases of everything God does. Definitive, or another way to say that would be judicial or legal, then progressive, and then ultimately consummative. It's consummated, it's finalized, it's done. This is certainly the case with, with salvation. Uh, if you read the, the New Testament scriptures about salvation, sometimes it sounds like we have been saved. Sometimes it speaks in the ongoing tense as if we are being saved. And sometimes it speaks of it in future tense as if we will be saved. Well, which is it? Have we been saved? Are we being saved? Or will we be saved? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Our salvation was definitively, legally, judicially established the moment we're born again. 
it, it, be, it became a legal, judicial reality in heaven, un, unchangeable, immutable reality. Uh, the moment God basically says, yes, your book is in, your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. Uh, you've, you've given me a hold in your life and I'm never going to turn you loose. That there's this judicial thing that takes place. And, uh, and we, we talked about in the first, uh, in the first couple of sessions of Jesus the prophet that basically God has built the universe on a judicial framework that God himself is limited. You know, we talk about God's sovereignty, but at the same time, uh, God is self-limited by his own righteousness not to violate the judicial framework of, of the universe that he's created. Which is why when he delegated earth to man, that delegation had legal binding and God couldn't just undo it. He couldn't just turn the Etch-A-Sketch upside down and shake it and say, do over. Because he built the universe on a judicial framework. Uh, it's the, the, the greatest evidence that that's the case is that the fact that Jesus had to come. That, that there wasn't, God couldn't fudge the rules. God's not free. Uh, he, he's not free to violate his own righteousness and the own judicial order that he's created in the universe. So everything that God does, he does first legally. He, he does it in a way that it is judicially correct in the, in the courts of heaven. And that's certainly the case with our salvation. And yet we then we work out the implications of that salvation. So there's this progressive thing that takes place in our life gradually, line upon line, bit by bit, uh, piece by piece, the sanctification thing that takes place. There's this progressive aspect to our salvation because we are being saved. And there's this day that's going to come when that salvation is going to be consummative. It's going to be completely done. That's the case in almost everything that God does, and we're going to see that in in the Scriptures. So, let's just take a little tour of the Old Testament to begin with. Let's go back to Eden. Eden. You know, in the Garden of Eden, basically God created this wild, woolly, untamed world. And then there was this one little piece of it. He created a, a cultivated, he created a little cultivated piece of it and put a man and a woman in that little cultivated piece in the east of Eden or east of Eden. It's basically it, what God did there was, it was while all the earth was untamed, he put man and woman in this place and said, this is what this place can look like when it's cultivated, when it's cared for. Here's a model. This is, this is, what, this is what cultivation of a space on earth looks like. So here's your model. Replicate this. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and take dominion over it. Basically, extend what we've done here to all of these wild, uncultivated places all over the planet. I give you legal, I give you legal deed to this entire planet. But there's just this one little spot right now that's the only spot that's cultivated. Cultivated and keep it. There was a guardianship, there was a stewardship component to that. And expand it, extend it progressively. And little by little, do so. We see that replicated again later when God brings the children of Israel to the edge of the land of promise. At the edge of the land of promise, they're standing there on the other side of the Jordan getting ready to cross over. And God said, this land is yours. I give it to you. What was that? That was judicial. That was legal. That was a legal grant to this land. And he described the boundaries of this, of what this legal grant was. Then he said, go over and take it. 
Well, there was this progressive thing that happened had to happen. As a matter of fact, if you look at um, uh, in Exodus, we won't turn there, but in Exodus 23, 29 through 30, God tells them specifically, I'm not going to give this to you all at once. Little by little, you are going to take this land so you can manage the, the, the conquest of it. Uh, if I gave it to you all at once, you wouldn't be able to manage it all. So there was this progressive uh, aspect to the way that they were supposed to take uh, take the land of promise, this little by little piece. In Proverbs 4.18, I quote this scripture all the time. It says, the path of the just is like the dawn, it grows brighter and brighter until the full day. Now, this is true of a justified person. You know, the, who, who is the just? The just is whoever's been justified. Well, who's been justified? Any believer. This is, this is the promise or the reality for the, for the believer. If you've been justified, you are the just. And the, this is what the path of the just looks like. It grows brighter and brighter just when, it, when it's night and you begin to see the first little bits of dawn. And then that, those, the sky gets lighter and lighter until the sun is completely up and high enough that it, you, you're living in a fully illuminated Day. That's what the pathway of a justified person looks like. But there's also a collective, the just. Who collectively are the just? Well, the church. That's the path of the church. What God designed the church to do is their pathway to grow brighter and brighter until the full day. Turn with me. If Let's let's all turn over because there's going to read a pretty good chunk of scripture there to Ezekiel chapter 47. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Old Testament. Ezekiel's been having a series of visions related to the temple. Well, at the moment Ezekiel's having these visions, the temple doesn't exist anymore. It's been destroyed uh, by the Babylonians, and uh, he is uh, in exile. So he's having visions about a temple that hasn't yet been rebuilt. It would ultimately be rebuilt by Herod. But in this vision... As a matter of fact, if you look at verse 1, he says, In my vision, the man, that was basically the angel that was taking him on a tour of the temple, brought me back to the entrance of the temple, and there I saw a stream flowing east from beneath the door of the temple and passing to the right of the altar. And on its south side, the man brought me outside the wall through the north gateway and led me around to the eastern entrance. There I could see water flowing out through the south side of the east gateway. Measuring as he went, he took me along the stream for, and this is where I just, I just got to stop here for a second, because I love some of these new translations of the Bible, and I'm reading out of the New Living Translation, but many of them, many of the modern translations take it upon themselves to translate the numbers of old measurements into modern equivalents, and the, the the numbers in these prophetic writings, numbers in Ezekiel and Daniel, numbers in the book of Revelation mean something. Those numbers are there for a reason. And when you translate that number into a modern equivalent, you completely abandon the prophetic, symbolic number that God put in the original scripture. So my... My helpful translators here of the NLT said, measuring as he went, he took me along the stream for 1,750 feet. <laughs> That's just a face palm moment right there. Who, ha- who has a... Who has a pr- 1, thank you. 1,000 cubits. 
this also the some of the helpful translations in the um, in the, the book of Revelation do the same thing where um, uh, the, as the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven it's a cube shape and it's a thousand stadia wide a thousand stadia long and a thousand stadia high or no not a thousand to twelve thousand well that number's there to mean something but many of these translations translate it into how many miles it's like fourteen hundred and I think this, tra- this one says it's fourteen hundred miles no and as a matter of fact, if you were going to do literally do the math, it's like 1,413.66 repeating miles. But it's the, the, it's the number. The number is significant. And the number 1,000 in Scripture, in prophetic, in prophetic passages of Scripture, the Bible always uses 1,000 to mean a huge, almost uncountable number. That's what it means. So in Deuteronomy, Moses tells the people that God is faithful and God keeps his covenant to a thousand generations. Well, that there, there's no implication there that when God gets to the thousand and first generation, he's going to feel free to abandon his covenant. I'm past my limit now. I'm going to be, I'm, I'm, I'm going to be violating my covenant all over the place because I'm beyond the thousand statute of generation statute of limitations. No, what it's saying is that this is this huge, unnumberable number. When the psalmist tells us that God owns the cattle on a thousand hills, he's not telling us that on the thousand and first hill that the, those cattle don't belong to God. Thousand, thousand is prophetic for huge, big, giant, long, long way, long time, big big mount. So this angel is basically taking Ezekiel around the temple and this little trickle of water starts out of the altar and then as the trickle leaves the temple complex and heads south toward the Dead Sea, it's become sort of a larger stream of water and then he measures a thousand cubits away from the temple and by the time he gets uh, that thousand cubits away the water has risen to ankle deep. He measured off another thousand cubits and led me across again. This time the water was up to my knees. After another thousand cubits, it was up to my waist. Then he measured another thousand feet and the river was too deep to walk across. It was deep enough to swim in, but too deep to walk through. He asked me, have you been watching, son of man? Then he led me back along the river bank. When I returned, I was surprised by the sight of many trees growing on both sides of the river. Then he said to me, This river flows east through the desert into the valley of the Dead Sea. The waters of this stream will make the salty waters of the Dead Sea fresh and pure. There will be swarms of living things wherever the water of this river flows. Fish will abound in the Dead Sea, for in its waters its waters will become fresh. Life will flourish wherever this water flows. Fishermen will stand along the shores of the Dead Sea, all the way from Engedi to Eglahame. The shores will be covered with nets drying in the sun. Fish of every kind will fill the Dead Sea just as they fill the Mediterranean. But the marshes and swamps will not be purified. They will still be salty. Fruit trees of all kinds will grow along the sides of the river. The leaves of these trees will never turn brown and fail, and there will always be fruit on their branches. There will be a new crop every month, for they are watered by the river flowing from the temple. The fruit will be for food and the leaves for healing. Hey, uh, loads of good stuff up ahead, and your gateway to that yummy goodness is a just a little sidebar that we call page two. Let me quickly remind you about my devotional called Praying Grace for Women. Here's why I, a dude, wrote it. Far too many Christian women 
beloved daughters of God are spread too thin, exhausted, stressed out, burned out, or living with chronic anxiety. And for many, prayer has become a fruitless, frustrating, joyless exercise. Yet another box to check, another duty to perform. Well, I have wonderful news for the weary feminine soul today. There's another way to pray, a more effective way that produces a refreshing, life-giving connection with God's love, grace, and power. Get ready to discover grace for rest, grace for intimacy with God, grace for peace, grace for breakthrough, as well as the keys to praying from strength rather than struggling for strength. Okay. Now, back to the life-transforming content I'm serving up absolutely free of charge today. This is symbolic imagery of the New Covenant system. Jesus, the Son of God, the Prince of Peace, the Messiah, the High Priest, the prophesied prophet, walked into the, walked into the temple... And just uh, and then on a Passover weekend, as sacrificed lambs were being sacrificed there, he was sacrificed just outside the city. But something started there. Something was launched in that temple complex with Jesus's arrival that started something. But what it's what started began as a trickle, and then over a long period of time became an ankle deep thing, and after a longer period of time became a knee deep thing. And after longer period of time is a waist deep swimming thing. And what it's doing is it's flowing into all the earth and wherever it goes into this, these dry, parched, corrupt, uh, defiled, lifeless places and lifeless people and lifeless hearts and lifeless communities and cultures all over this planet, wherever this river has gone, it's brought life. It's, it's brought regeneration. People have basically, uh, it's, 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 it's brought sustenance, it's brought healing, leaves uh, from the, the trees that grow along the side of that river. Wherever this river of, of uh, the church, God's new covenant people, the Jesus movement goes, uh, healing comes. But as this, as this predicts uh, and anticipates, there will, there will always still be some salty, marshy places. Wherever the, wherever the gospel goes, not everyone gets on board, not everyone gets changed, not everyone participates in the life that comes. But the farther out you get from that moment when Jesus walked into the temple and founded this new covenant system with his own blood, that little stream that just began as a trickle way back there 2,000 years ago, the farther out that stream has gotten, the deeper and more life-giving uh, that this movement has gotten. There's one more I want you to look at. It's very prophetic in Daniel. Next book of the Bible. Daniel chapter 2. Are you doing okay? And as we read these, I just want you to continually, continually ask yourself, is the Bible telling us a story here? Is the Bible giving us a picture of progressive, gradual development, increase, or not? Okay, in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. We're all pretty familiar with this because he has a dream of this giant statue. This giant statue has different parts, and uh, the, the, he can't interpret the dream. And, and basically, Daniel ends up not only telling him you know, what dream he had, but he ends up interpreting it uh, for him. 
Let me see where I want to start you. Verse 31 of Daniel 2. In your vision, your majesty, you saw standing before you a huge shining statue of a man. It was a frightening sight. The head of the statue was made of fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its belly and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. Its feet were a combination of iron and baked clay. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. Now, I want you to watch, take note of this verse very carefully. As you watched, a rock was cut from a mountain, but not by human hands. It struck the feet of iron and clay, smashing them to bits. The whole statue was crushed into small pieces of iron, clay, bronze, silver, and gold. Then the wind blew them away without a trace, like the chaff on a threshing floor. But the rock that knocked the statue down became a great mountain that covered the whole earth. So, a rock is cut out without hands. Rock, dull scissors. No. Rock smashes feet. Rock grows into a mountain. Mountain fills the whole world. Got it? So, that was your dream. Verse 36. Now we will tell the king what it means. He goes on to tell the king that the four parts of the statue... He goes on to explain that the four parts of the statue are four kingdoms that are going to arise on the earth. And Daniel absolutely, with with astonishing precision, predicts the rise of the Babylonian kingdom, the Persian kingdom, the Greeks, followed by the Romans, which were the next four great kingdoms to arise on the earth. As a matter of fact, Daniel's predictions about these four kingdoms that were to arise are so uncannily accurate a lot of the skeptics and the liberal theologians suggest that he must have, this must have been written by somebody in Roman times because it, it, was, it was too right on. But the fact of the matter is, is that the head was the Babylonian period, the chest was the, was the Persian period, and uh, then, the, um, then there was the, the Greek and then the Roman period. And it's, it's interesting that the Roman period, the legs and the feet, Rome, the whole history of Rome can be divided up into two eras. There was the Republic era and the Imperial era. Up until Caesar Augustus, uh, it was a republic. Rome was a republic ruled by the Senate. With the coming of Caesar Augustus, Caesar Augustus became the first emperor and Rome became an empire. So from, from Caesar Augustus forward, it was an empire. So there's this clear two-part division in the way the Roman Empire was structured. Interestingly enough, somebody significant was born in the reign of Caesar Augustus. Who was it? Oh, yeah. Jesus of Nazareth was born in the reign, Luke 2, the Christmas story that we always read. It says, in the reign of Caesar Augustus. So at that, at that pivotal dividing point between one and the other, Jesus came into the earth. We know through many other pro, uh, prophetic and uh, explanatory scriptures that Jesus is that rock cut without hands. I mean, we could go to scripture after scripture that talks about Jesus, the predicted Messiah, the anticipated Messiah, was the stone what the builders rejected, was the stone cut without hands. This is very evocative imagery of Jesus talking about this, this little stone. But what happens in this dream is that this stone that is cut without hands smashes the feet of iron and clay, which is the, the, the later part of the Roman Empire when the Rome, Roman Empire was weak and brittle, and then begins to grow. This little rock grows into a mountain. And then what happens to the mountain? 
it fills the whole earth. So clearly what Daniel is describing here is he's seeing a, a, a Jesus-based movement, a, 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 a Jesus messianic event that begins uh, at some point in the Roman Empire, but then grows progressively larger and progressively more influential. As a matter of fact, it's, it's not inconsequential that it was the growth of this Jesus movement throughout the Roman Empire that basically caused the Roman Empire to ultimately, uh, as, as a pagan empire, to fall. It was essentially destroyed and became a, became a Christian empire. That's, um, that's for another day. So, we've got Eden. God saying, here's a wild, untamed earth. Go forth and gradually, progressively take dominion over it so that you ultimately cultivate all of it just like this little plot I've showed you is cultivated. He tells the children of Israel, here's this wild, untamed, unconquered land. I judicially give it to you. Now go take it. But you're only going to take it little by little, piece by piece, progressively, gradually. And then fast forward several thousands of years and Jesus is standing on a mountainside with several of his disciples. And he basically says to them, guys, here's a wild, untamed, lost world. Go ye therefore into all the world and make disciples. Here's this wild, crazy, untamed world. Take it piece by piece. Look, for example, there's the Great Commission. It's Matthew 28. It's very familiar. Matthew 28, verse 16 ish. Then the eleven disciples left for Galilee, going to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. When he saw them, they worshipped him, but some of them doubted. Isn't that amazing? But the Holy Spirit hasn't come yet. Jesus came and told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Let's stop there for just a second. I have been, not future tense, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey the commands I have given you and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. That's the Great Commission. Let's look at the final commission. Flip over to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, they asked him about the kingdom. They asked him, they asked, the disciples asked him a question that reveals their presupposition. Remember we just talked about presuppositions? And they, they, they clearly reveal in this question that they're operating from a presupposition that's false and faulty. And the moment the Holy Spirit comes, the scriptures are going to be opened to them within 15 minutes of being baptized by the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Peter's going to preach a Holy Spirit, the first Holy Spirit-inspired sermon any other person other than Jesus had ever preached. And it's going to demonstrate that all of a sudden he understands the Scriptures that he didn't understand when they were asking this question. Is it, this, is it at this time that you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel to Israel? He says, that's not for you to know. That's a, that's a silly question that doesn't make sense, but you don't understand that it doesn't make sense right now. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses, telling people about me everywhere, in Jerusalem, throughout Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Legal, judicial, progressive, and then consummative. 
Do you see it? What we're going to do over the next few weeks, right now we've looked at the Old Testament. We're going to look a little bit at Jesus' words this week about the nature of the, the kingdom, seeing this definitive, then progressive, then consummative pattern being repeated over and over again. Next week, we're going to look at the Pauline revelation. But Jesus had to say some things about the kingdom. Look at Matthew chapter 13. The picture that emerges is that when Jesus was preaching the kingdom, or for John the Baptist, that matter is, is that when he, when he, was, when he would say the kingdom, the kingdom of heaven is near, Jesus went up and down the land preaching about the kingdom. What he's saying, when he's saying the kingdom of God is nigh, the kingdom of God is near, what he's saying is that a new system is coming. The old system is, is about to pass away. The promised new system, that system promised by Jeremiah, where Je- Jeremiah said, behold, a new thing is coming, a, a, a new and better covenant based on better promises is coming. Uh, that, that's, that's the kingdom. The kingdom is the new covenant, this new system that's coming. And so Jesus is trying to get all, as many Jewish people as possible to prepare their hearts so that they can receive it. So the, the kingdom equates with the new covenant system. Uh, in Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells a whole series of, of parables that are kingdom related. L- look at uh, chapter 13, verse tiny type, verse four-ish. Listen. A farmer went out to plant some seeds. As he scattered them across his field, some seeds fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate them. Other seeds fell on shallow soil. You know the parable. Basically, it's the parable of the soils. Sometimes it's called the parable of the sower. But essentially, in this parable, Jesus is describing the four kinds of uh, this as this message that a, that a new system is coming. The old covenant system is going to pass away. A new covenant system is coming. That message is falling on four kinds of hearts in among among Jewish uh, listeners. But then he goes on, he, he talks about the parable of the wheat and the weeds. He says the kingdom of this, I'm jumping to verse 24. The kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field, but that, uh, that night as the worker slept, his enemy came in and planted weeds among the wheat and slipped away. When the crop began to grow and produce again, the weeds also grew. The farmer workers went to him and said, sir, the field where you planted that good seed is full of weeds. Where did they come from? An enemy has done this, the farmer exclaimed. Should we pull out the weeds? No, he replied. You'll uproot the weed if you do. Let both grow together until the harvest. Then I will tell the harvesters to sort out the weeds and tie them into bundles and burn them and put the wheat in the barn. So basically, Jesus is trying to explain to them, first of all, that for a significant period of time, there had been two uh, in, in Israel itself. Basically, the enemy had come in and sown a lot of bad seed so that there was this harvest coming, and that harvest was coming in AD 70, essentially, where uh, those people, the tares were going to, uh, to make themselves evident, and those who were wheat, that was going to be evident as well. Then he goes on to explain, look at the parable of the mustard seed. Here's another illustration Jesus used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but it becomes the largest of the garden plants. It grows into a tree. The birds come and make nests in its branches. I should probably say it at this point, but that that Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven. 
whereas Mark and Luke use the phrase kingdom of God, but they're interchangeable. I know that there are some people who have tried to, to make some distinction between the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. But it's very clear if you study the parallel synoptic gospels that there are situations that Mark and Luke describe where Jesus is in a certain place in front of a certain group of people telling a certain story and he uses the phrase kingdom of God and Matthew tells the same story and it's Jesus in the same place telling the same story to the same people but Matthew translates it's kingdom of heaven Matthew's simply using a device because he's written his book trying to convert Jewish hearers convince them of the truth of the reality of the messiahship of Jesus. So he's using a less offensive term, kingdom of heaven, that's tailored for his audience. But it, 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 it is kingdom of God in Mark and Luke. It's kingdom of heaven in Matthew. And here he describes the kingdom as this progressively growing thing. Starts out as a little tiny mustard seed, and then it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. But it gets big enough, ultimately, that some other creatures, it not only provides shelter, it provides food. It also becomes a haven for really non-godly creatures. Birds in the, in the scripture tend to be a um, yeah a, 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 a type or a symbol of the demonic. But he's not quite sure here that people have gotten the point about the progressive nature of the kingdom of God. So he moves on to say, Jesus has also used this illustration. The kingdom of heaven is like the the yeast a woman used in making bread. Even though she put only a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permeated every part of the dough. Finally, and we'll, and we'll close with this, we'll move to the Pauline revelation, but Jesus made some very specific declarations about his kingship. In Matthew 27, you can turn there if you want to. You know, Pilate is asking whether or not he's a king. Matthew 27, I can't remember which verse, but... Uh, Pilate is saying, well, are you or are you not a king? And basically, Jesus ultimately says, it is as you say, and thank you, verse 11, it is as you say, I, I am a king, but, he says, but my kingdom is not of this world. If, if, you, if you look at that in the Greek, Jesus is not saying that his kingdom is not present on this world. He's not saying it doesn't exist on this world. He's saying, he's saying its authority does not derive from this world. In other words, this, the, the, my, my kingship, the, the authority that makes me a king, is not a, is not a worldly authority. There's no institution on earth. There's no person on earth. There's no people on earth that, that made me a king. My kingship is rooted and sourced and authorized in a place that is not of this world. That's what he's saying. Then in the next chapter, Matthew 28, 18, as, exactly on that side of the cross, Matthew 28, 18. We looked at this a little bit earlier, but we need to look at it again. Uh, Jesus told his disciples, I've been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. He's basically saying, here's a wild, untamed earth world. They're lost they're dead inside. They are unregenerate and broken. Be that river. Be that river that brings life wherever it goes. The, un- the understanding that Jesus' kingship, his kingdom, is a present reality, not primarily a future reality. 
and that it is unfolding and growing and advancing has enormous implications about what you about how we pray and what we ask God to do and what we expect but it also and this is this is what we'll we'll talk about in our third session is is it has massive implications about how you view the devil we're going to talk about the devil and here's a spoiler alert he he gets very small he 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 gets very limited he gets very small in when you properly understand what god has done judicially about the kingship of jesus in the earth through his cross and through his victory and through his ascension you know, jesus told his disciples i said how, how do we pray and he said well pray, pray like this and one of the things he said is your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that's the essence of the kingdom is bringing heaven to earth opening up windows through prayer faith expectancy proclamation declaration prophetic pronouncement that basically open up windows and allow us to bring he- bits of heaven to earth Okay, neighbor, before we bring this rodeo to an end today, let's do page three. How about I share a little insight about how you can take a deeper dive into all I have on offer for you. When you can, sashay on over to davidaholland.com. Now, you got to get that A in the middle there. That At davidaholland.com, you'll find a smorgasbord of stuff that will help you live the sweet life. That's a life of rest and hope and meaning. So until next time, please remember God is better than you think and you're more loved than you know.